Shane Kilkelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this time we are talking about Act 3 of Kentucky Route Zero. If you didn't get the first couple of episodes, yada yada, go back. All that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, uh, wow, what a, what an act! This this one's this one's big. This this is um, this is a substantial increase in scope over the first two main acts. Because um, this clocks in at what two hours, maybe three, sometimes if you're if you're really going for it. Um, yep. Yeah, that sounds about right. It's a lot. Um, so in terms of generalities, like I I like this act a lot. It's got some of the best scenes in the entire thing. Um, I was reminded of a, a problem I've always had with this act, uh, that I think the connective tissue between scenes is really quite strange and tenuous, in that when I think about Act 1, I can very clearly remember the chain of cause that like leads Conway from Equus Oils to the Marquez farmhouse to Elkhorn Mine and so on. I can kind of never remember how they get to the Hall of the Mountain King in Act 3. I just... It's Teflon. It slides off my fucking brain. Like, do you find that's the case, Kyle? Uh, so I would say that this act, it's somewhat better uh, held together than uh, Act 2, uh, where you get, like, that weird stuff about, like, the permit from the Bureau, which is, like, what what is that even about? We never get any explanation. It's just magical realism nonsense. Uh, But this one, it's like there are kind of like coincidences that knit everything together, right? Like it's kind of like, okay, well, you um, start out, uh, you're driving uh, to try to go back to the zero, and then your car breaks down, you run into the the pair uh they hook you into going to the bar in exchange for mechanical repairs uh and then after that it's like okay well we better go somewhere and they have a reason to go down to the zero now because they want to collect on that debt from the bar so there's you know there's kind of like all like there, there, there are reasons given for every place that you go to, unlike Act Two. But I agree that they're they're quite like coincidental. It doesn't have that like it, they're they're not like um, you know they're not like Weaver showing up in Act One where it's like very uh, heavily uh, produced and you know you get a lot of action on screen to like justify the plot going to the next part part it's more just like a bit of dialogue between characters in a scene and that's the the motivation that's there mm-hmm. oh well um it's I, I i don't think it's massively worse off for that it's just it's just interesting to reflect on the that sort of se- seemingly very tenuous kind of connections that, that that drive the plot forward at this point but um i could also imagine given the scale of it like you know, there's so much material they have to cram in. It's like there could well be material that was cut because it's just like we just don't have time to to put more stuff in to make it make it connect better, perhaps. Um, before we move on to the actual uh, content, I, I was flicking through the um, the options menu, like the pause menu, and I was like, you know, it has the usual shit. It has like exit, it has load and save and all this kind of stuff and like options. But then I was like, hold on, hold on a moment. Multiplayer? There's no multiplayer in this fucking game. So I clicked through and the multiplayer instructions it gives you are really astounding. So I'm just going to read them out here. 
Multiplayer instructions. Point one. Play until you encounter something. An image, a sound, a choice of words, a notable absence that reminds you of someone else in the room. Point two. Pass control of the game to that person. Point three. You don't have to explain yourself. Point four. And so on. Like, <laughs> I'm going to have to try this sometime. It's really good. <laughs> No, it, I like it a lot because um, it reminds me of the way that perspective and dialogue focus is shifted in the game. Uh, like, between, you know, uh, the various characters. Uh, sometimes even to just, like, w random NPCs. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really cool. Um, I like it as a tabletop game designer. It reminds me a lot of something you might do in that kind of, like, parlor gamey sort of uh, 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 design approach. Um, yeah, it has, it has the sort of, um, it has the sense of like, uh, tabletop RPG instructions that are printed on the back of a pack of cards or something, you know, it's just like the, this like very straightforward, like four bullet points. The, these are the entire rules or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, as far as generalities go for this act, uh, I think I, uh, I, I, I definitely approached it with a certain amount of trepidation because, like, we're well on the downhill slope uh, here uh, in Act 3. Um, and, uh, you know, just that that stuff about, like, the um, side effects of the medical treatment uh, or uh, Conway's dialogue at the beginning, it just, like, totally knocked me... Out, I was like, I can't even play this this week. So we had to we had to postpone recording <laughs> a week because it was just too much with what I had going on in my life situation uh, at the time. Um, and then when I did play through it, like I I managed to to play through it eventually, of course. Um, and uh, just came away from it with a really uh, just rough sense of like depression um because this is a, a this is an act that is pretty much all about uh Conway's regrets in life um and how they weigh him down to a point where he is ready to give up on living mm -hmm. absolutely and it it it, it might sound strange to say, but it, it, there's a marked increase in just sadness in the tone right off the bat, um, which which is saying something because it's quite a grim game up until this point, and they kind of managed to dial it up somehow. Um, yeah, wow, it's, it's it's an absolute beast. Um, it's heavy. It's very it's heavy. heavy. Yeah. Um, so the the, the cold open. Um, gives us this introduction to the heaviness, but like it, it, it has this like huge shift in color palette initially. Um, cause we, we open on this golden sunlight and, um, uh, Lisette and Conway sitting at the kitchen table in, in the morning sun, apparently. Um, there's something immediately off about this because Conway is swaying in his chair, uh, which is quite weird. Um, the conversation kind of, uh, flits around between, um, you know, like, oh, the horses were keeping me awake. Oh, oh Ira loved those horses. And then kind of slips into the stuff about um, Charlie, Lisette and Ira's son, and the accident um, where um, Charlie slipped off of a roof um, on a day where he was replacing Conway. Um, 
and real tragic little kind of story there. Um, there's some really nice kind of, I, I mean, yeah, this, this is the, the, the increase in sadness right from the start, right? Like you, you have dialogue options such as it's getting harder. <laughs> and, um, you know, when, when, uh, Lisette seems to stumble finding the words to describe Charlie's accident, your options are, it's either a shame, a tragedy, or a, um, oh, I forget what the other one is, but it's, it's, it's quite sad as well. Um, so this is this is this is bad shit, <laughs> you know. But it's it's a really gorgeous little scene. Yeah, and this relationship between Conway, Lisette, Ira, and Charlie is uh, going to constantly be in the background throughout this act. Uh, we we open we open with this scene because so much of what Conway reflects on, and so much of the sort of like. Uh, mood setting background stuff is directly tied into this relationship or these relationships that Conway had prior to starting this job. Uh, we, we really focus in on this stuff in this chapter. And there's the, there's also the very particular detail that like Conway seems to be very, very haunted by the fact that in particular, it was his, his drunkenness that got Charlie killed. Um, that it was because he was too drunk to work that morning that Charlie um, had to go. And Charlie being maybe 19 or 20 or something, he's, he's, a, he's a young college student at that point, um, but he was maybe on vacation from his studies uh, back home and like dad was like, yeah, get in the van, we, we have to go and uh, do a roofing job. This scene sets up the, the last delivery as well, um, where Conway's going to go out and take out this last delivery to Dogwood Drive. Um and this before Lisette is, uh, there's a couple of options here, but I think the, maybe the canonical one is that she's packing up to move in with her sister Cora because her, uh, her memory is slipping and it's kind of the end of the road for Lisette's antiques. Um, but we get a really beautiful transition then where um, the, the, the light dims just a little bit and Conway turns slightly away from the table and the camera switches to an above head view. And we see that he's actually in Truman's house. He's still sitting at the kitchen table. And now he's got a glowing orange skeleton leg um, that he, he's, he's taken notice of for the first time. Um, which, yeah, th- this thing is... Yeah, like, especially because, like, if, if you're playing this back-to-back, the last thing we saw was the, the boys from um, the distillery, glowing orange skeletons, and now Conway has this <laughs> going on. Yikes. Yes, uh, from the... the uh the play in the lower depths that we we just saw in the interstitial part. Uh, yeah, so this this uh, leg, I mean, it, it really introduces to us to the effects that they're using for uh, the skeleton people um, in uh, this game. Uh, they they put a ton of work, you can tell, into these effects. Um, it. It has something that resembles, uh, like, uh, phosphor decay. Uh, uh, So if you, for example, uh, are using a CRT monitor and you have a really bright object that is moving against a really dark background, um, you can actually see the rate at which uh, the, the phosphors on the screen are decaying. Uh, because the contrast is so high, uh, and it creates this blur, uh, behind objects, uh, and that's basically the kind of, uh, look that they're emulating with this, uh, 
with this effect. Um, and it, it's essentially like a kind of uh, after image trail that, that goes after the leg. But like when the um, object is not moving very much, uh, it appears as a blur because it's, it's essentially like a number of images accumulating on top of each other. If, you know, say Conway's leg is just fidgeting from one side to the other, uh, it, it, it uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it looks just blurry. It looks so good. Um, it's, it's such a wonderful little effect and it's, it's so warm as well compared to a lot of the other, the colors that are on screen. Um, this is really beautiful to look at and it's, it's very subtle as well. Like I, I could definitely imagine, as you said, like, them putting a lot of time into writing these textures and shaders. Yeah, this is very fancy. For, for something that's not on screen very much, really. Like, it's, it, it takes up very little of the screen when it's there, but, like, it's very hard not to notice it. Yeah, very different. Uh, it's very different. Uh, like, very... Uh, it, it contrasts very sharply with the uh, flat-shaded uh, polygons that make up the rest of the game. Yeah, there's there's no shaders anywhere else. <laughs> it's it's all, all on those legs. Um... So, like, now that he's come around, um, uh, Truman and Shannon are asking him, like, how does the leg feel? And the, the three options here are absolutely heartbreaking. Option one being, this isn't my leg. Um, option two being, okay, yeah, but it wasn't, maybe it's not actually worth it. And option three, I'll quote, it was the heat, the shingles were cracked in the sun, and one of them slipped out from under his feet. And he, as in, he's he's just spacing out and, like, not actually hearing them, and he's still stuck in conversation with Lisette. Um, to which Truman and Shannon are like, uh-oh. This brings us to, like, the side effects of the medication, a sense of, like, deja vu and lost time. Um, like, Tr- Truman asks him, like, like how, how did it feel to be under? And he says, like, I was dreaming. And he's like, eh, that that shouldn't be a side effect of this. Like, you, sh- you shouldn't have dreamt during that that, uh, that moment. Um, but this, this sense of lost time and kind of scrambled memory is a side effect of the neuripnol TM. Um, and so this 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 will stick to Conway from this point out. He'll get more scrambled as we go. Yeah, this uh, this description of the um, side effects uh, with what I was going through between COVID, uh, not having a regular sleep schedule, and working uh, in multiple time zones. Uh, 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 it just, this is what completely knocked me out. I was like, I can't play this game right now. This is, this is too intense. Like this is too close, too close to what I'm experiencing in my life right now. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's really rough. Uh, and yeah, I mean the, um, I think that third response is really setting up this connection between regret and uh, debt, yes, uh, which yeah. we see recurring throughout this this episode. Absolutely. Um, there's the, there's the mention of the billing again and the consolidated power company. That like I mean Tr- Truman doesn't even really understand the repayment plan. He's like, oh, it's it's something about you, like oh, it'll all be folded into your electricity bill. And there's something here about generating electricity to send back to the grid. Um, and so like yeah, he's he's been hooked up for an absolute fucking monster of a debt. Um, that Truman doesn't even seem to really understand what he's what he's damned him to. Yeah, and this uh, this this description of how the energy pl- uh, credit payment plan works, like where you like basically feed energy back into the grid, kind of reminded me of like the description of surplus value. 
Mm-hmm. Like sure. it's 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 like oh it's something that that doesn't really make very much sense. We don't really know how it works, uh, and also it's like you know everything you do in your life you are feeding energy back into this grid of capitalism. Uh, yeah, so it's it's uh, it's that that was you know that was the thing that came to mind when I read that. It was like oh yeah, this sounds like surplus value. This sounds like exploitation. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, and it, it definitely has that same um, that, that that sense that Marx gives in of like this vampiric alien kind of presence, uh, this like bizarre alien logic that you're you're all kind of enslaved to. Um, and there's there's a lot of that kind of grim and gothic imagery uh, going on here uh, around the consolidated power company that is 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 very very similar to what's in the pages of Capital, um, except in the, we don't have vampires this time. It's uh, skeleton monsters, but can't have everything, I suppose. Yeah, electric, electric skeleton boogaloo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at this point, uh, Julian will fly you back to the Museum of Dwellings, um, and then you get the, the next, the the first proper title card is for the Museum of Dwellings. Um, the truck is still parked outside. It, the, the the parking lot is flooded, which gives us really nice and like it's viewed from above, so it's got this lovely reflective kind of thing going on. Um, the, the museum is closed, and Emily, Ben, and Bob are standing outside it. And um, predictably, when Conway tries to interact, they just don't respond. Um, it's as if he's a ghost. Um, yeah, one of them can kind of hear him, but like it's only like, oh, did you just hear something? Like, like, and then everyone's like, nah, it couldn't be anything. Like, there's, it's like, yeah, it's like there's a there's a spectral presence speaking to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like. What must it be like for Conway to be just gaslit by these fucking clowns every time they encounter him? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, what the hell's wrong with these people? Um, it, it's, it starts to feel more and more like Emily, Ben, and Bob are actually on a different plane of reality somehow. Um, not just that they're... I mean, yeah, who, who the fuck knows what these people really are um, at this point? Um, uh, but there's there's a bit of chat here then with Shannon about like the the side effects and like I mean every like Shannon's still concerned for him like he's like you you shouldn't be driving you're gonna have to take it easy and you know are you are you feeling okay with the medication and this is where we get into some really interesting dialogue um this is where the stuff about Weaver's ADHD meds comes up um but we we covered that a couple of episodes ago um but there's also things here about Shannon's family history with precarious access to healthcare yeah that's right uh just you know. Uh, because of her her family's immigration status, she said that essentially, like, there would be periods where it was like, oh, yeah, you're, like, legal enough to get uh, health care. And then there would be periods where that would get banned and uh, they would have to, like, go through, like, uh, sort of, uh, you know, black market networks among the miners uh, or try to uh, talk to Shannon's family because when they were working for the university still, uh, they had like a decent medical plan through that. Uh, so they would, you know, kick them some meds here and there. Uh, but it was all kind of precarious and, you know, obviously they didn't have a proper consultation with a doctor. And this is what led to, uh, Weaver giving, uh, Shannon her ADHD meds and, you know, as someone who's uh, been denied medical treatment for ADHD uh, for the last uh, few months uh, because uh, terrible doctors, uh, this definitely hit close to home. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, I don't know. Like, the, the whole thing about, like, um, there being, 
like a kind of family or like a, a kind of local network folklore of of medicine because like somebody's got a half bottle of antibiotics and they can kind of like half advise you on like you know the right time to take them and take them in the right kind of dosage but everything's just a fucking dice roll basically and it's how it's how uh, Shannon ends up like delirious and um like uh dying of dehydration from the ADHD meds and it's like well yeah I mean like nobody nobody fucking diagnosed her properly or who knows who knows how many she took you know yeah exactly like she um you know uh sorry uh 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 Shannon uh clearly does not have ADHD mm-hmm. uh and was just taking it was like it was a kind of a coincidental thing where it was like uh, Weaver was getting, you know, got diagnosed with ADHD as a kid. And like one of the symptoms that was, you know, suggesting she might have it is that she, you know, had trouble focusing in school. Right. But then Shannon was having a trouble focusing in school because like, you know, her parents precarious immigration status and like the nature of their work, um, which was not actually because of ADHD, but because they, were, they couldn't actually get a doctor, you know, Weaver was like, basically like, well, I had trouble in school and I started taking these and I did better. So maybe you should take these too. And it was like, well, yeah, okay. Seems reasonable enough. <laughs> and stands, for a yeah. while it helped uh, until she just, you know, went into a uh, hyper-focused nightmare zone um, because of, uh, yeah, being hopped up on meds she didn't need. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Um, it's a very affecting um little little digression and like this 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 becomes more of a thing in these next couple of acts where shannon will just kind of blurt out something about her family history or some some very interesting anecdote um and so that's that's how they're delivering some of the backstory here um they start to do that a bit more um it's an interesting character move right because like it seems like shannon can't help like when she observes something she just can't help form the association and start talking about it um i think this is also because like um this is where we start to really uh, majorly transition to Shannon becoming the uh, main character or the protagonist of the game. Yeah. As yeah. opposed to Weaver or sorry, as opposed to uh, Conway. Uh, so they, you know, Conway manages to have like his, his like blackouts. Uh, he talks to his dog, uh, but they start to like transition these things over to uh, uh, Shannon because she's going to become the central character, uh, you know, progressively over this act and then into the next few or next couple. Yeah, definitely. So their plan for now is, well, where do we go next? We need it's, it's kind of like either either or both of um, get back on the zero somehow and or find Lula. But they're not totally sure where to go next. Um which is maybe setting up this kind of loose connective tissue of like not, it, it, it's not quite as strong a pull that's pulling you forward now. Um, but when you when you set off driving, the the car will break down. Um, I, I don't think you can. I don't think you can reach any landmarks on the map without breaking down at this point. Yeah, no, it's 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 just like it doesn't really matter where you choose to go because it's actually just a setup for this breakdown scene. <laughs> yeah, this is a mandatory mandatory breakdown. Um, the title card is a tree, and you are stuck in front of a tree. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's a downed tree. This is where they do that like physical modeling stuff where the tree is dangling off of power lines and it's kind of bouncing a little bit in the wind. Um, so the kind of stuff they were playing with in limits and demonstrations is uh, is on uh, is definitely here. Um, there's a fun little bit where 
Uh, Shannon tries to call for a tow truck, but um, you you get Shannon's side of the conversation, but the the other person's side are all um, parenthesized items such as inaudible, comma, obtuse, and inaudible, comma, accusatory, uh, which just makes for a really fun little kind of routine um, as we walk work through that conversation. But it's not clear at all that anyone's coming to help them, <laughs> so they're just kind of stuck at the side of the road. Yeah, because, it, it, well, first of all, it's like... Um this is like because we are an audience to like a stage play, right? So we can't hear what the other side is saying on the phone. Uh, we can just hear what Shannon's uh, uh, Shannon is saying, and then what a bystander would hear from the phone. Uh, so, so that's that's a cool touch. Uh, and then it's like, well, um, yeah, at some point, basically the conversation just terminates with like background noise. Uh, so it's like, yeah, the, the, the final option is like a distant traffic noises. or something. Yeah. It's like, who knows if someone's coming? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They just, they just don't get anything out of them. Um, I, I, Conway can wander over and chat to Ezra. There's a fun little bit with like, um, Ezra doing like 20 questions on him. Um, and it's the, the guess is that it's a bird's nest, uh, which Ezra describes as being that like it fell out of a tree, but we're putting it back together, which gives you maybe t- tiny insight into Ezra's um, thought process. Um, but at some point, we abruptly switch um, cameras to a motorcycle bar- barreling down the road, and uh, its its radio is going going a full blast. Um, these are two new characters. This is Junebug and Johnny on their way to a gig. These are itinerant musicians, um, and they are fucking great characters. I love these two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're fucking amazing. They're such good, like, comic relief to be brought in at this point, um, and there's their new blood being injected into the cast. Um, really fantastic. Yeah. Uh, very surreal. Uh, these are basically um, hipster robots um and uh you know they're they're very into their music mm-hmm. they're the worst they they are they are me in my 20s the most obnoxious music fan you know um but they're they're great because like the the, the motorcycle the, the camera's kind of pivoting around this nice little motorcycle but um their chatter back and forth is basically like they're they're trying to get to this gig. Um, oh well, you know we wouldn't be late if we didn't stop to record that frog. Um, it's just really lively banter between the two of them. They're they're evidently very good friends, and um, in kind of they're establishing quite a contrast between this these two and Conway and Shannon right right up front. Yeah, well, and it's it's very funny. Like you have two options for why they're late, and like you know, in the entertainment, they were just waiting and waiting and waiting for these people to show up, right? But then when you get to uh, decide like what the reason was, it's just like some ridiculous thing (laughs) that never gets explained or discussed. Uh, again, it's just like, oh, they were just doing hipster shit. Yeah, like, Johnny needed to record that drain pipe or something. He just had to get those, get, get it on tape, you know? Found sounds and this kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, John, Johnny is, is, is Puya here making his, <laughs> uh, his noise music, you know? Recording various noises, yeah. Absolutely. Um, but the, the, ca- the camera flips again to the motorcycle driving past the tree. Um, and then flips back to the motorcycle. There's a very... Knowing what what comes next to these these initial points of contact are actually very interesting, because Johnny insists on turning back to help, and one of the 
options is to say that they had a kid with them. Um, and then when they do turn back to help and they pull up, Johnny and Junebug address Ezra first um, and seem to establish an, a very immediate rapport with the kid. So that it's just very interesting on this replay to note that that, that was happening. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I think I, I think that uh, that's a constant throughout this episode that uh, Junebug has a lot of rapport with Ezra. Um, I think that, you know, they're much closer in age uh, than Conway and Ezra. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, um, I think that that's really uh, important. Uh, and, and Johnny to some degree, too, but, you know. Uh, he's mostly off screen, so yeah. Johnny's Johnny's often not on screen with us. He's um, he's a bit of a background character, but he's a he's a subtle one. He's a much more subtle character than Jim Mug is. Um, but now that they're off the bike, the, the first thing you'll notice about them is this this whirring mechanical sound when they walk, which they they don't they don't say they're robots now, but it's like it's it. In some sense, it's kind of hard to miss. But then I do know people have missed this, and they've been like puzzled all the way to the end. As to what the what what the fuck is that sound? Yeah, um, yeah. If you uh, look at um, Ju- uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Junebug's model uh, on scenes where there's more of a close up, uh, and you could and and she's uh, in the walk slow uh, animation. Uh, it's very clear that she's a robot. She has this very like kind of. Um, uh, like moving from her core as opposed to moving from like with her arms. It's a very kind of like, I am a robot. Hello, human sort of sort of walk that she does. It's a, it's a very interesting walk. I think it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's a lot of that. It's also a lot of, um, she, I don't know how to describe it. She walks very high, like she's on high heels and is like, again, as you said, walking with her core. Yes. But it gives this almost like, like the Jetsons family robot kind of vibe, you know, in, in a certain kind of way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Although that robot didn't have legs. Didn't have legs. Yeah. What do I think? Maybe it's the dress that makes that seem that way. You know, I think it's, it's kind of like of that era though, is, is what I get. Like, you know, that era of robot depictions is kind of what I get out of it. Is this kind of like stilted high up, maybe, maybe a little bit three PO, you know, yeah, something like that. She, she walks with her palms facing the floor as well in a very, like, high femme, sort of, like, high heels kind of, uh, yes, kind of gesture. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, she she looks kind of like she's doing a... Catwalk strut or something? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And, uh, that, that pins it down. This, um, but, like, I mean, great fucking animation, right? Um Yes. And if she's running, though, like if, if you're in an area where uh, you move quickly because the game decides what pace you walk at in any given area, um, she just runs full gate. It's it, it it's not uh, it's not a stilted thing mm-hmm. there. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be way too much if it was just like, you know, <laughs> just watching her fucking like climb up the climb up the hill or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the, the conversation here is great where they're introducing themselves and um, they're, they're kind of offering to fix the truck um, in exchange for the gang coming to their gig to fill out the audience a little bit. Um, they can fix the truck because, well, because they're robots, but they're, they're also self-confessed gearheads and they're, um, 
They're, they're, uh, what name did you give to their motorbike? I want to I know this. Um, I put the, uh, what was it now? The, the, the deviant vector or something like that. The first weird vector. Yeah. The first, the first option, weird vector. Mm-hmm. I think this is something like blue. There's, there's only one real option here and it's weird vector, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> also, I guess because like one of the, one of the tracks on the soundtrack is called weird vector. So I, I kind of take that to be canonical. Oh Yeah. No, it's it's a it's a good name. It's 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 quite nice. Um, but anyway, the, the truck is fixed and they're back on the road. Um, you get this overworld of Kentucky bit, which uh, could be one of the last times you get to explore Kentucky above ground. Um, so you need to mop up some of these things, uh, such as going to Equus Oils or whichever location you chose to see Carrington. Uh, for me, it was Equus Oils. Um, I was a tiny bit disappointed that uh, there, there isn't that much here because Carrington is waiting on the crew to arrive because the, um, they don't start setting up for the show until morning. I was like, no, oh, it'd be nice to nice to see the play. Um, but there's there's some fun little bit of dialogue here. Um, there's um, there, there, there's stuff about like you know he's asking like, oh, where should we set up and this thing you know and you can kind of suggest that the the audience and the players should be mixed together and he's like, oh yes, how very postmodern and this this kind of stuff you know. Um, but it's 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 more Carrington, you know. Yeah, it, uh, it's very easy to miss this. Very, very, very easy to miss this. So, so I guess for myself, because I chose to have him go to the um, the storage unit, I would have to go there when you end up on the zero uh, towards the end of this act, uh, in order to uh, act like probably between being in the Hall of Mountain King and then going to the Bureau. That's probably probably where you can go meet Carrington if you make that choice. Um, yeah. But I, I miss this, yeah. This act is the last time you get a chance to do those open-world exploration sections, actually, in both cases, both for the Zero and Above Ground. Um, uh, if you talk to Joseph, um, Ezra immediately asks, does your computer have games? And Joseph says, yes, it does. Actually, my niece came by and installed games on there. So um, it is no longer the case that games is not real. Um, this is fucking heartbreaking, though, because like the uh, one of the games there is the therapist game, uh, Psychoanalyst, which is El- Eliza, right? Uh, like we talked about before. And uh, Conway plays and it's like, OK, tell me about how you're feeling. I feel lost. And... Um, I'm thinking about drinking again. I was like, oh, oh, Jesus Christ. We're, 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 we're well onto the downslope into the pit by this point. Yeah. And I mean, the, the therapist is about as helpful as you would expect Eliza to be. Um, uh, kind of gets you to go through this meditation exercise, which doesn't really help out Conway at all. Not in the slightest. Well, like a meditation exercise about like a dimly lit, infinitely long corridor that he has to sit on a bar stool in and just like, yeah, it seemed nightmarish. Um, yeah. Uh, and then the other game is like a kind of management or like a life sim game. And it, it just, it just gives you like, it's like, oh, you're in college and you have like these various things to deal with. And it, it I, I do like that when, at the end of the game, like your score is very like it's not a numerical score for the most part. It's just like an adjective or something. <laughs> uh, so 
it, it's kind of yeah. wacky and quirky and fun. I, I like that that game. That was that was nice. It's a nice little detail in there. You know, it's like you can, you know, you're you're you're, you're at a crossroads. You can either become a grad student or take up rock climbing. And it's like, <laughs> okay, you know, those are fun little options. Yeah, like. Or, or live in a tree, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, oh, this is a good tree. Everything feels right in this tree. Uh, and, it, it, you know, it's... it's. Uh, I went through all the different permutations that you can go through on that game just because it was a little bit of fun. Uh, and again, the, the computer has that really cool effect to the text uh, that you get get there. I think it's the same as in Act 1. It's got that, um, I think all the computer interfaces in this have that, like, amber glow, which is really lovely. No, 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 no. Oh, no. wait, is this, this, just, this one, one different? Th- yeah, this one is, uh, white on black. Hmm. I don't think I recall that being... I don't, re- I don't recall noticing that that was different between the other ones. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, it's, it's like a, it's like a, yeah, white, white on black monochrome CRT as opposed to an amber on black. Ah, oh, that'd be so cool. It'd be so cool if, like, um... They were all, like, I mean, I, I don't know if there's many other, like, um, times you interact with the computer, aside from the big one later, but if they were all subtly different, because they're actually different models of computer, <laughs> you know, there's different textures to represent the um, the text, yeah, that is quite fun. Yeah, they definitely put some work into that. Fantastic. Um, elsewhere in Kentucky, there's a, there's a lot of other optional content that you can go and look at, um, but one that jumped out to me was, um, I think it's a bus stop outside a clock shop or something, but um, Conway will kind of drift again he'll just kind of like space out and remember his backstory with Lissette which is quite interesting that they knew each other in school and they would you know skip class and go drinking and that sort of thing um they would go around hit the bars and like you know Conway would help clean the bar while Lissette sings and that sort of stuff to earn money to drink but they would they drifted apart eventually I think when Conway took up um working on the road and then when he drifted back into town he got a job uh, roofing with this guy, Ira. And when Ira brought him home to meet the wife and kid, there's Lisette. And they kept quiet about it. They just kind of, like, nodded and were like, okay, yeah, we know each other. But it seems then that, like, Ira didn't actually know that they had a history, um, which is an interesting little interesting little tidbit. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is a really important bit of backstory for Conway and for the scene that's coming up. Uh... But basically, this is another one of his regrets, right? That that he had this kind of unrequited love for Lisette that was uh, ruined because he took this this job out on the road, uh, and you know he sort of says like that's where I started drifting, right? When when uh, when I when I took that job, that's where I started drifting, um, and uh, it's. You know, there's kind of an implication that if that hadn't happened, they he might have had a better life, um, maybe. But you know, also, also they maybe, yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, things don't go well, so he, it's hard to imagine it being worse. You know, I don't know. Yeah, so it's 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 a big regret at the back of Conway's mind, um, and uh, it's going to figure directly into the next scene. The other thing I will say about the clockworks is you can pick up passengers and, and drive them places on the overworld. I picked up the the young woman, and actually she has another sort of ADHD story uh, where it's like she's trying to de- design a better office chair mechanism, uh, and she's sort of like, you know, stuck in a dead-end job, uh, 
talks about how like you know she the the teachers were always worried she wouldn't live up to her potential in uh because she couldn't focus in school it's just sort of classic adhd coding uh and uh and then you know just basically this little story about someone who's like yeah didn't really do so good in school super bright has this project they're focusing on uh but basically they'll never amount to anything because their work is always going to hold them back um little stories like that yeah yeah i think i think there's i think i picked up it wasn't that one it was somebody else um i I don't really recall what the story was but it's it had an amusing thing where it like you're driving towards this person's house and like there's this um you know when you interact with it you get this like this person is telling you their backstory and then it just cuts off and it's like oh that's my house there and he just jumps out of the car it's quite a funny little thing <laughs> but it's like you're, you're you're like getting really into it his backstory and he's like oh yeah fine whatever bye bye greg um anyway um when oh i think maybe there's another tiny tiny small detail if you if you pull up to the marquez farm, farmhouse um it does you can't go in there it's just a text description um both the barn and the cave entrance are gone and the horses are nowhere are, are just like standing around not bothered by anything so how are you going to get back to the zero uh, if you thought you were going to skip this uh, skip this scene and get straight back to lula you're wrong that's not going to happen we pull up at this bar the lower depths we've heard of this one before <laughs> it's uh it's mostly the same as in the entertainment in terms of its layout uh the difference is there's a big stage on the right which uh, wasn't there in the entertainment. And obviously this is like, this is, uh, this is a, like a more believable space. It's not just like staged. Uh, it's like, uh, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's got like normal flooring and, uh, it has, uh, like lighting from above as opposed to just from the back of the bar uh and uh you know there's there's like chairs and ki- kind of a more uh normal configuration although you can go up to the the table where your character was sitting with the the brick sandwich it's still there um it's the goggles are still there so yeah it's it's pretty much uh you can see how the entertainment is like a different interpretation of the same space like the jukebox is there on the left instead of the machine that plays the audio cues for the play um it's it's pretty neat it's pretty neat to see this like restaging or or uh recreation of this this uh space kind of abstracted space the priming for this was really really good like the way the interludes are done to like prime you for what's coming next in the main acts is really nice um and it does become evident that this is kind of immediately after the content of the entertainment if not the form of it um because harry is there and um you know junebug and johnny are disappointed because nobody's here to see the show and he's like yeah everybody had to clear out (laughs) very ominous uh delivery on those lines yeah the the other thing is like he you can have another line of dialogue where he's like uh like you know i i i struck a deal with uh i struck a deal like there's a lot of like a little really like shifty suspicious dialogue from (laughs) harry and like harry is constantly mentioning how like he's not a good person 
and how like 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 basically like he has a lot of guilt about what he's done uh sending everybody off to the distillery absolutely um Rightfully so. There's there's an interesting bit then when um, Harry's doing the, the usual line. It's like, oh, it's, it's only hard times whiskey. And uh, I think Conway's option is to say, oh, yeah, sure, I'll have a whiskey. But Shannon cuts him off immediately and is, like, preventing him from, from drinking. She kind of knows what the score is. Um, which I don't recall seeing that happen in the dialogue before where you select an option, but it's not the line that gets spoken next. There's it, that's, 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 that's Shannon's agency shifting as well, right? Like, where... Even when you are ostensibly Conway selecting a dialogue option, it's actually Shannon who's in the driver's seat, and it's 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 subtly moving your agency away off of Conway and onto Shannon, which is very nice. Um, we then get this absolute fucking blowout performance um, with uh, Johnny and Junebug on stage uh, performing a song "Too Late to Love You." Um, this is fucking spectacular because like the, the the scene is very low; it's set very low to the ground and it's a very low ceiling. Um, but when they take to the stage, the lighting changes and their costumes instantly change. And then the roof peels away to reveal the night sky. And it's, ah, uh, this, this is just incredible to look at. a lot of the opera scene in Final Fantasy 6 in that there's like music and you're making choices uh, to construct the song uh, but this is this is actually more dynamic because essentially you have options on screen uh, to choose a lyric and then that is going to um, basically like set the 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 next section of the song up and the the character will uh junebug will sing it and then you get to choose the, what's going to come next uh whereas in ff6 it was more of a memorization game where it's like you had to pick the right one uh there, there is no wrong one here it's just like choose your own song uh choose your own adventure song yeah um the the con so like um the 
the the outfits are wonderful. Junebug has this beautiful blue dress, and um, Johnny has this like red jumpsuit with his his, his little keytar. I love the I love the animation on their dancing. Like they're just bopping, and like like well, Johnny's fairly static. He's just kind of bopping with his keytar, but Junebug does these really wonderful little um, gestures with her arms and shit. It's it's fantastic. Um, really, really beautifully animated. Um, yeah, uh, uh, Johnny's appearance. Uh, it here kind of reminds me of like Devo in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. He has the glasses and everything and the little buzz cut. Um, fantastic. Um, the content of the song seems to be borrowed from Lisette, probably because um, before they before they start, Junebug mentions that this is a song she heard in a tavern a while ago. Um, it's a lonely, sad song. Um, the, the lyrical content does really seem to be about Lisette pining after Conway, um, which then seems to be confirmed at the end when Conway, like, it's, so they, they're like, how was that? And it's like, I heard it before from Conway. And it's, yeah. It's like, oh, I've heard this before. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's that all of that is really kind of interesting because um, the timelines could be a bit screwy there as well, where uh, when would he have heard this? Because like, would he have heard it while they were bombing around skipping school and, like, he was washing dishes while she was singing or something? In which case, like, he wasn't gone yet for her to regret that? Or did he hear it after he started working for Ira? Would they be hitting, hitting bars together then? Or was Lisette hitting bars and stuff? Or is Conway's memory a little bit scrambled from the new retinol? Maybe, Maybe all of the above, you know? I, I kind of took it a bit differently where it's like... Um, you know, he knew that Lisette was a bar singer and, um, I think he's kind of just putting two and two together here where it's like, oh yeah, I heard this in a bar around here. And, and then it's like, and he's like, oh yeah, I'm the person that this song is about. You know, it's like, I, I, like he hasn't literally heard it before, but he's like, oh yeah. Okay. I know where this comes from and it fucking sucks the content is immediately familiar in yeah in a sense yeah okay that definitely works but uh yeah like the the the, the, the scene is incredible right and like it it um the, the the roof tiles settle back into place and there's actually quite a nice little sour note at the very end as the lights come back up um which is wonderful um however harry can't pay uh, because he's he's clean clean out of money all he has is a iou from the distillery to which Conway helpfully suggests, yeah, we can take that, sure, <laughs> as payment, why not? Um, but that's kind of a problem because they would have to go down down there to collect on it. Um, and Junebug and Johnny nod and they're like, yeah, we, we understand what that means, we'll, we'll, we'll take it. Um, yeah, like Harry basically says, like, I've heard some rumors about that place. Are you sure you want to go down there? And then they're like, oh, yeah, no, we'll do it. Um, mm. Again, this the subtle kind of like hmm, something not quite right about those boys. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. you'd be getting uh, yourself in trouble if you went down there. And this is this is how they get roped into this party, right? Like, because it's like, oh well, we need to go to the zero two to collect. Yeah, I mean, they they still they still um yeah that's that's their way of um of making that work for the moment. Um, there's a there's a very before before we leave, there's a very interesting and weird line from Harry that I'm not totally sure what to make of because um. Uh, when you're in these kind of dialogues, there's a couple of options for like 
making the connective tissue work here. And one of them is for Conway to say that, hey, we need to get on the zero also because we're looking for Dogwood Drive. And then Harry says, oh, Dogwood, do you have, like, uh, I've got a stack of letters. Did you get them too or something? And he's like, I think this is a reference to the mail delivery boat that is going to come up at the end of the um, end of the chapter uh, because that uh, boat, um, like, because Lula tells you to take that boat to Dogwood Drive uh, once she figures out where it is. On the mail boat. Okay, that makes sense. I I kind of, I, I, I didn't put that together and I thought, like, why does Harry have a stack of letters maybe misdelivered that are, are destined for Dogwood Drive or something? It would, and, but there's nothing else to elaborate on it. Now, you're, you're, I think you're quite right in that interpretation. Um, the directions that Harry gives you back to the zero are very interesting. You, you turn on the radio, uh, drive until you hear something familiar yet strange, and then turn around immediately when that cuts out, um, which gives us this really, really cool little vignette, because like, you, you tune into the radio, and the channel they settle on is this weird like noise thing of like the sounds of horses. And... I think for Conway, it's like it's familiar because Ira loved horses or something. Uh, I think Shannon has a similar excuse. Yeah, um, well, I guess there were pro- there were horses on the property, right? On the the Marquez uh, property. Um, uh, probably reminds her of Weaver. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, it's it's all about regret. It's all about regret. Yeah, <laughs> that's what this chapter is about. Well, you got you got to tune into the radio channel all about regret, right? And then when it cuts out, um, the, the the animation you get or the the little micro scene is very very cool. Where they, the the truck st- pulls up to a stop on the highway in the pitch dark, and all you can see is just horses standing around in the dark, illuminated by the headlamp, and then the truck just stops and turns around and pulls away. Um, at which point you're dumped into the zero at a location called The Horses. Um, on this loop, there's only one other option, though. You can't go any, anywhere else aside from this other landmark called The Hall of the Mountain King. Um, this is another one of these like tenuous kind of connective tissue bits, which, on reflection, like once we see this, some of the scene, it'll become apparent that there is an in-game explanation for why this is the case. Um, because when we pull up at The Hall of the Mountain King... Um, we get like the the bridge that you're driving on is broken, and and so you get like the the truck is stopped at the edge of the broken bridge, um, and eventually you'll get to the other side, and it's like this this is actually a derelict part of the zero that doesn't actually connect to any other part because it's broken, and you have to traverse the hall of the mountain king to get to the other side to get back onto the main part. So it's not just a gameplay conceit that the only option you have is to go on to the... Like, if you had gone in through the Weaver Mar- the, through the Marquez house uh, entrance, you would have ended up in the main circuit of the Zero. But because you've gone this other weird way through the horse aperture, <laughs> you will instead be dumped into this side channel of the Zero that has, is, has been cut off by a collapsed bridge. So it, it does work, but it's this is why it felt kind of Teflon-y for, like, you know, it's, I, I can remember the two scenes. I remember the bar scene, and I remember the Hall of the Mountain King. But for the life of me, I, I really struggle to remember how they get between the two. Yeah, the fact that it's just it's the only option on the road is, um, you know, there's no strong plotting there. It's just like, oh, okay, well, this is where I go, I guess. 
Yeah. This is where they need to be, you know? Um, very cool scene though. Huge cave. Um, and like you're, you're kind of walking up this path to get to the, to the center of it. Um, I think Johnny stays with blue at the truck, um, while the rest of them go off. Um, and you, you walk up this huge walkway and it's like, again, like just massive amount of stalactites and stalagmites all over the place to the, and you find this like huge, like pile of burning computers in the middle of the fucking, um, cave. Um, and you're then in this kind of like circular boardwalk around, around the pile. Um, just a super fun little space to, uh, to navigate. Uh, yeah, I just will say about Johnny, um, like there's a line from Junebug about how like he's basically like the dog for her, like you know, <laughs> yeah. like like he's he's like her her sidekick basically, like literally rides in the sidecar on her motorbike, um, sticks around with Blue when you go to do things, uh, is is just calls her ma'am, is that right? Uh, yes, I believe so. Calls her ma'am. She calls him Cricket as a little pet name. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's very like a kind of like, uh, you know, like he's he's this affectionate sidekick character that she has. He's a much more passive character and um, he's he's more subtle. Like he, he will come into his own, but like more slowly. Whereas Junebug is the much more active character. Um, uh, and she's, she's a bit more loud and brash. Um, so... Which which makes her a really fun addition to these scenes. Um, yeah, she's she's quite fantastic. Um, as you go up the boardwalk, the, the first person you encounter is Amy, and she, the way she greets you is quite fun. Um, she's like, "Oh, it's it's triangles within triangles down here," you know. And it's like, she's like, it, she immediately reads a set a set of recursive love triangles into the people she's just met. Um, she's like, oh yeah, Shannon, you're, you're here to steal back the heart of the boy you once loved, but you, you're escorting her pretending to have her best interest at heart. And then she's like, to Junebug, it's like, but really you're in love with the young woman and so on and so forth. And like the dialogue options are really fun. It's like Shannon can either respond with, what are you talking about? Or Junebug can be like, yeah, I'm into it. <laughs> it's very fun. Um, well, it's very much like, a uh, like when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, uh, with her where it's like the only thing she knows how to do is make love triangles. She's, she's a writer, you know, she, she's been writing, uh, uh, Mills and Boone novels, you know, uh, she's an erotic writer, um, who got into computers because, you know, uh, everything's computers nowadays. So she went back to college to study human computer interaction and then got roped into Donald's project. Um, there, there's a fun line. There's, there's very, something very fun here where she's like, um, because like we, we we don't really know what this is about quite yet, but she's saying that like in in her off hours she used to play with the the doomed love story at the core of the little simulation, um, but now it's just a pile of bugs and so on, right? And like she misses those days back in her Lexi, uh, her uh, studio apartment, right? Um, just doing doing the old uh, writing erotic literature. Um, yeah, like this obviously hasn't worked out for her. So she's got her own regrets. Uh, I think the triangles within triangles thing is also sort of like a double entendre because it's like love triangles, but then it's also polygons, right? It's all, um, yeah, definitely. Right. It's all, it's all, that's, that's, that's the way it renders. Um, but we, if we swing around to the left, then, um, we run into somebody who's labeled as old man, but is Donald. Um, the other, he's the, he's the third node in the, uh, Lula Joseph Donald triangle. Um, I, th- this, oh, this whole thing is this ode to, um, 
crumbling academia and the sort of, um, I don't know, there's like a lost futures angle here as well, because a lot of it leans on the um, early intersection between computing and the humanities. Um, Those threads that went nowhere and that Donald is still very much mourning the loss of these things. Yeah, that's right. Um, You know, he's... It's it's essentially like he was leading a research team that was working on something that was so out there that they couldn't really get funding for it. Uh, And um, this, you know, he's working... Essentially, he was developing um, an interactive fiction project. Uh, He's... Mm -hmm. he's, It's like a simulation or an AI system of sorts, but with like a lot of non-linear dynamics and stuff like that. And like there's... yeah. Yeah, so this is um, this project Xanadu that he's been working on um, is a reference to a real world uh, a piece of software, the first real interactive fiction game um, uh, called the Colossal Cave Adventure, uh, which is enormously influential, unlike Xanadu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there are a number of uh, uh, points of con- of contact or a similarity between Colossal Cave Adventure and Xanadu that we'll kind of get into. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's again, it's kind of this fringe project in the world of computing. Um, it's just, yeah, the, the, the story of Donald is uh, one that's a, more of a failure and... Uh, and it it does definitely like yeah get at that interactive fiction angle which sort of figures into like the um origins of game studies as a discipline uh which a lot of it came out of hypertext and interactive fiction um but that was like not until like the late 90s that that really started to become a discipline thanks to the prevalence of video games that were not that Right, like the the video game industry took off as like you know platformers and shooters and all this other kind of stuff, right? R- Real time strategy games, and these people who had been fucking around with hypertext and interactive fiction kind of like hopped on that bandwagon and made the discipline of game studies. Um, uh, but you know they had kind of just been like weirdos in literature departments and stuff until that time. <laughs> yeah. And now we're confronted with weirdos uh, who have, haven't seen the literature department in quite a while and have been stuck in a cave for a couple of decades. Um, there's something very sad about all this, right? Because like, um, the way Donald talks is still very much in the kind of academic mode. Because he's like, oh, maybe you've, maybe you've heard of it. Maybe, maybe you read about Xanadu in a journal. Um, and he's like, he, he, he names a journal, like Literary Multitudes, Hypertextual Narrative as Post-Structural Witness. And it's like, yeah, that's right on the money for like 90s... Uh, uh, hypertext fucking computer. It's it's very like I don't know. Uh, it's like that Warwick stuff, right? The the CCRU kind of thing. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. That post Marxist kind of like when the when the wall came down and everyone was into computers stuff. You know, in the humanities. Oh, I don't know. There's something eerily familiar and depressing about all this. <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. Like whenever um, I'm like workshopping a paper title. Uh, with my with my team uh, uh, in in school in grad school right now, 
It's always like I want to give it a straightforward title, and then everyone's like, "No, no, 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 that's no good. We need to, we need to add a subheading to it. It needs to have, it has to have a sub somehow in it. You know? Yeah, it has to have a subtitle, or it's it's if it's never gonna work. And I was like, <laughs> I'm just like, oh my fucking god. Okay, like just like like oh like I I don't know. It's just that academic bullshit <laughs> it's like can't we just like say the thing is the thing that it's talking about you know like can't we just title it in a straightforward way no 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 no, no. that's far too direct you gotta like hedge everything and yeah. make it obtuse and yeah yeah you gotta gild the lily you know um you know you gotta gild the lily otherwise it's not it's just not scholarly enough yeah absolutely but that, that's that's donald that's all donald here right like and he's like um there's a fun intersection of like, you know, cause like he, he's like, Oh, cause he's mourning all this sort of stuff. He's very dis- uh, despondent about it. And he's like, do you have any idea what it's like to spend your life building something and then sit powerlessly as your work declines into ruin? And then your options are like Conway saying, yeah, saying like, yeah, I, I drive deliveries for a fucking antique shop or Shannon being like, I fix TVs. Um, or Ezra being like, my family disappeared. <laughs> you know? And it's like, okay, yeah, maybe they do have some idea. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, that's not quite it because it's, it's, it's Conway saying, I drive for an, I've spent my life driving for an antique shop that's about to close down. Or uh, Shannon saying, Yeah, I fix TVs and uh, like I've got too much debt to keep the place going. You know, and or like Ezra saying, I lost my family. So it's all people are like, Yeah, like actually I lost everything. So I know exactly what that's like. Just not in this like romantic uh, way that you know it, right? I do love Junebug's option, which is just not really. Um, yeah, not really. I'm not. I'm on an upward trajectory here, y'all. It's like r- rip to your life projects, but I'm built different. <laughs> she's got real Zoomer energy, you know. She's just like it's 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 such a fun injection of new character into the into the thing, you know. Um, but yeah, like so. There's a lot of Xanadu was this like AI simulation system. Um, it's it, specifically it's been augmented with mold uh, that they discovered there was like nonlinear dynamics that they could inject into it. Um, yeah, it's very like beers beers swamp computer weirdo shit that's happening here. Yeah, right. It also seems to have been that like injecting the kind of mold into it or, or allowing that to happen just increased the variety of the thing to the point where it was unmanageable and has um, has decayed into ruin. Um, uh, he's, he's also smoking the mold in his pipe, which is very amusing. Like, why, why bother with weed when you can have clean, crisp mold uh, in your pipe, you know? Uh, it's fantastic. Um... What does he? What does he prompt you to do then? I think it's like, what's the prompt here? He's no, he he invites you to go look at it, right? Um, to like see, ah, oh, you know, you know, you 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 can you can look at the the ruins, um, look, look at the, uh, the the ruins of the thing. But in, in order to get there, you have to traverse over to the other side of the um, of the cave. On the way, you can meet another couple of uh, grad student people who got sucked into this vortex. Um, there's Andrew who has been tasked with mapping and describing the caves caves down here. Uh, there's something really sad here, because he's like, you know, he, his, story, his story is that he, he got suckered into this, and he's like, yeah, I, I really have put in the hours, you know, <laughs> don't get me wrong. And he's like, my, my dude, you've been in a cave for a couple of decades. Like, you could just go, <laughs> you know? Like, But um, I don't know, do, does this resonate with, like, dead-end academic stuff? Like, it, it seems to. Oh, yeah. Oh, big time. Big time. 
where it's like you're stuck in a, a failed research program and it's just like leaving leaving is like inconceivable because a, a, your entire reality is just academia and this like cloistered cloistered reality um it's yep i've been there <laughs> i know what that's like <laughs> Roberta then has a slightly more apocalyptic take on this, where uh, she opens with the line, "The kingdom is in peril." Um, and there's, there's some fun, there's some fun lines here, where like if, if Ezra quizzes her, like, "What do you mean about the kingdom?" and it's like she's like, "Oh, there's this is a cool kingdom, and there's treasure scattered everywhere." And like the descriptions of the treasure are fantastic because one of them, I, I don't know why this grabs me, but it really does. It's a magic mirror that prevents the future. I don't know. That's that's super evocative and cool. But she's just doing this riff, you know, it's like, oh, the kingdom is in peril, like the, the kingdom of, like Donald's kingdom, the kingdom of academia. Um, and maybe this is part, like her outsider perspective comes from her being an independent scholar that got roped into this project. Um, so she's not quite as bought into the whole thing as the others are. She's an autodidact. She just, she just really liked reading stuff as a, as, a, as a kid. And so she became an autodidact and then got roped into this project after it was sort of fringe. Uh, outside of academia huge huge mistake you know knowing things reading things massive fucking mistake you know knowing about stuff is a strange game and the only winning move is to not play that's my take on things yes (laughs) (laughs) stop this podcast now don't learn anything do not learn. return to buggy what's what's that fucking meme format these days where it's like don't do mathematics anymore it's been an absolute scam look at this shit look at these diagrams it's nonsense they have played us for fools you know uh so this treasure stuff i believe is a reference to the colossal cave adventure because uh one of the things you do in that game is you uh you move through the cave system and collect treasure uh so this is yeah this is this is a nod to the colossal cave adventure. Do you get a magic mirror that prevents the future? Because I really want that. I don't know if that's one of the treasures, <laughs> but like the the treasure conceit is from that game. Yeah, that's you're quite right. That has to be a direct reference, really. Um, I love the notion of like this being I don't know like something that prevents the future being of great use to these people because as doomed as their project is moving on from it seems impossible. And so you would want to prevent the future from happening somehow. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh. There's something very evocative in that one line, which is, which is very cool. Um, well, I mean, it, it seems very appropriate for uh, our society as a whole, too. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, don't, don't we all want to prevent the future that seems to be happening, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd give anything for that magic mirror. We're working, working in futures. I can see how this has a broader application. Oh no! Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, and then the next scene is Xanadu. Um, looking at the notes here, I I had no fucking idea this was like such a close reference to something that exists in the world. So, uh, so Carl, what, what's this um, cave adventure, colossal cave adventure, all about? Right. So as I mentioned, the Colossal Cave Adventure uh, is the first known work of IF for interactive fiction. Um, and this is, I think, something they pulled on, you know, first to, well, just because of its history and what they're doing in this game. Uh, but secondly, because very famously, uh, this... Um, Game, the Colossal Cave Adventure, 
was written by uh, Will Crowther, uh, who was, you know, a sort of developer on early ARPANET um, internet stuff, uh, and created this this computer game, this uh, interactive fiction game, um, for his daughters uh, after uh, he had divorced his wife, uh, Patricia, uh, and in the past, uh, they had both been cavers, uh, working to uh, create these vector map surveys of the Mammoth Cave in Kentucky in the early 1970s um, for the Cave Research Foundation. So he had all this this sort of like, you know, life history tied up in these caves. And he made use of that history to create this cave adventure game that his daughters could play. Um uh, so it was kind of a mashup of his like actual knowledge of the cave system uh, with uh, his interest in uh, D&D, because this was, you know, uh, the early days of Dungeons and Dragons, the, the BX days of Dungeons and Dragons uh, that you see in Stranger Things. Right. Um, and uh, this. Uh, yeah. So he's basically a combination of D&D and his knowledge of the caves. Uh, and it's it's pretty much the sort of game. Well, it's very much the sort of game you see in Xanadu. The Xanadu game is just adapted. Uh, what Xanadu has um, is a actual uh, graphical display uh, like that is done on an oscilloscope. Um, whereas if you look at a picture of the Colossal Cave Adventure as it was programmed for the PDP-10 uh, computer uh, originally, it was simply text. Uh, so it's very, uh, very much uh, like the uh, text display that you see at Equus Oils. Uh, is it may, that that display may have been themed after the <laughs> PDP-10? Probably. Yeah. Look at that thing. Holy shit! Amazing. Yeah. So if you if you go to uh, Wikipedia, look up Colossal Cave Adventure, you can see this image of uh, the original game running on the original hardware. Gosh, that's amazing. Very cool. So yeah. So the, I, th- I think the key thing here is that it it's kind of like a game that was conceived out of a sense of regret over a failed marriage, and that gets to the love triangle that is in this game, but also the broader theme of regret that runs through this whole uh, chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, even, even looking at the screenshot um, or the, the, the photo, the, Xanadu does actually borrow quite a few lines and like settings from this uh, Colossal Cave Adventure. And I guess like um, the Colossal Cave Adventure being based on surveys of, or like, I mean, inspired by their experience doing surveys of the Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. Um, I mean, this underground section of the Zero, this cave section is realistically probably the Mammoth Cave, you know, or, or heavily inspired by it. So that's really amazing uh, that that's, that's all there. Um, yeah, and the, there are a lot of, like, connections. Like, uh, for example, the locations um, in uh, Colossal Cave Adventure are named after sort of, like, terms of art used by Spelunkers. And uh, this is basically the same in uh, Xanadu. Um, yeah, it's there's tons and tons and tons and tons of connections uh, <laughs> between these two games. It's very much like Xanadu is a riff on this original. Mm-hmm. 
And I guess like, um, yeah, I mean, it's a colossal cave adventure is the original of, of like Kentucky Route Zero, right? Like this is, Kentucky Route Zero is very much in this style of interaction. It just happens to have like fancy graphics bolted on as well, but the core interaction is the same. And you'll notice that the, the core interaction is the same in Xanadu as well. It's very much a nested game within the game that has basically the same interaction paradigm. It even has the like title cards and, and such. Um, but it's when the, when the gang interact with Xanadu, it's kind of busted, right? Like you, it, it's firstly it's gorgeous to look at because like you get this centered view of this um crt like a oscilloscope vector kind of um graphics thing which has this beautiful amber glow to it and that's all wonderful and this the ambient drone is fantastic but the text is all scrambled it's all over the fucking place and they can't make head nor tails of what it's actually saying except that it does seem to maybe sometimes say the words lula and joseph um so they're suspicious immediately as to what the fuck's going on um Shannon tries a degausser on the screen, but it doesn't really help. It's just a fun little button you can click to make the screen flicker, um, but it doesn't seem to do much for you. Yeah, the um, the amount of work that went into this uh, display is pretty incredible because, um, like as I mentioned, the um, original uh, uh, Causal Cave Adventure was not displayed on an oscilloscope. But this is, I think, probably just because they thought it looked cool, uh, which it does. But I think that the most impressive thing about this display um, is that the more uh, detail that is on the screen, the slower the refresh rate <laughs> of the screen runs. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Uh, which is just like an oscilloscope, right? Because it, it, it has a certain horizontal like uh speed that it can draw stuff onto the screen and like when you add more details it basically takes longer for it to for it to draw from one side of the screen to the other side of the screen um which is like a really cool physical simulation that they've worked out uh on this this screen here uh which you don't see in any other display in the game yeah like i mean i think this is um this is this is kind of emblematic of the thing that happens in Kentucky Route Zero, where there's something that like it, it's just very impressive immediately, and it's just very satisfying to look at. And then upon reflection, it's like, hold on, they're probably physically modeling a CRT in the game engine to make this work or something. Um, and it's like, wow, there's a lot of work going into that. And then you start to realize, like, oh yeah, of course, this took five years to release in between episodes because they had to they had to work out how to physically model a CRT inside the fucking Unity engine or whatever, you know? Um, yeah, and it, it's not just any CRT. Like, it's not like a Shadow Mask or, you know, a Shadow Mask-based CRT, which we're all used to using. It, it's like, it's 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 an oscilloscope-based one or a vector graphics one, yeah. So it's like, you know, very particular kind of CRT that is like, I mean, no one uses really anymore except for if you're if you're like literally doing electrical engineering work and you need to work with an oscilloscope. I mean, of course you could see like that video of, uh, those people who got doomed to run, doomed to run on, uh, on an oscilloscope. Uh, but, uh, you know, no one's really doing that stuff these days. Um, yeah, this, this is so much fucking fun to look at. Um, I love it. But the, um, when they use the degausser, it like doesn't do very much to help. But um, the program moves on to a title card, which seems quite suspicious. Uh, the Hall of the Mountain Gink, 
And it's like, uh, what? What the fuck? And it's, it shows like a rendering of the spire, like um, the, the environment you've just been in. Also, it's so cute that they... Because like, the, the, the title card for Xanadu itself is kind of scrambled. Like it's, it's Zekadanga Nagadu or whatever. And the text is scrambled on screen and all that kind of shit. But then Hall of the Mountain Gink, I think, is such a very cute little like way to make yeah. it fuck up. I don't know. It's just something very yeah. laughable about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just very cute. Um, but the program then crashes um, unexpected end of file and so on. And they're like, well, shrug, this thing's fucked. Um, so they, they pitch back to Donald and he's like, yeah, but like, you can see what it once was, can't you? You know, um, and he, he realized this, this story that like it started to crumble when the strangers came and they were horrible things. Um, and he's like, oh, if only I'd listened to Lula. And they're like, oh, hold on. We know Lula. We're actually looking for her right now. And, he, and he's like, oh, she's long gone. But she still lives in Xanadu over there. And um, so he, he misunderstands what they're saying. Like, I think he thinks they think that Lula still works here rather than they saw her three hours ago. Um, but uh, there's an interesting hint there. It's like she's still in Xanadu somehow. And he, he says that, like, Xanadu was a flawless oracle and a perfect simulation. And then he's like, hold on, wait, wait, maybe the strangers could fix it. Maybe that's how we get this thing back online. Um, he points you towards a tunnel at the back that you don't actually traverse. This just, this just switches scenes. Um, but you can go, go ask the strangers about this. Well, that's it for this episode. Join us again next time when we will resume our discussion of the third act of Kentucky Route Zero. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at generalintellectunit.net. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, etc. And we're on all the podcast apps, so like, rate, and subscribe. If you go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit, you can throw us a couple of bucks a month to keep the glowing skeletons away from the door, and to get access to our community discord. You should also check out emancipation.network, and have a look at our sister shows such as From Alpha to Omega, Swampside Chats, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Mortal Science. They are excellent shows and excellent folks. As always, thanks for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this show.